despite not being religious, Christmas is my favorite holiday. When I was a kid, it was a day where magic was real. Also, it was a day where I felt appreciated and rewarded for my good behavior. It was a day to make me feel special. It was a day where I mattered. As I've gotten older, my mindset on the holiday has changed. And now I prefer giving the gifts to make others experience the same feeling of being extraordinary as I once did. It is a holiday where I could give joy to others. So, as you can understand, Christmas is a special holiday. But that's the thing about winter holidays. We find the romance of the present during that time. We find it to be a time to get close to your heart. It's a time to reflect to enjoy your year, and to appreciate all of those close to you. Honestly, the holiday season is really a gift. It's a way for us to realize how hope can surround us on the daily. It's a way to appreciate all of those around us. But what happens when the holiday causes you to lose everything? To lose the one thing that is constant in your life, whether you like it or not? What if your family and closest friends were taken from you and no one believed you? What if you believed that they were alive but were told that they were dead? Do you sit back or do you fight? My name is Ellie and welcome to this Tales of Two Cities special episode. Welcome. This is the two cities. Oh, I'm so excited. George Sauter was born Giorgio Sodu in Tula, Sardinia, Italy in 1895. At 13, he immigrated to America with his brother. It isn't well known why George Sauter moved to the United States. His issues with Italy became a big theme in the story. But... We'll get into that later. Sauter, like most immigrants moving to the United States, found work in the railroads in Pennsylvania. His job consisted of carrying supplies to the workers. He eventually moved to Smithers, West Virginia, as a driver. After a few years, he started his own trucking company, at first hauling fill dirt to construction sites, and later hauling coal that was mined in the region. Jenny Cipriani, who had come to the U.S. from Italy in her childhood, became his wife. The couple settled outside nearby Fayetteville in West Virginia, which had a large population of Italian immigrants. They moved into a two-story timber frame house two miles north of town. It was their American dream coming to life. In 1923, they prospered again. They had their first of their ten children. George's business grew and they became, quote, one of the most respected middle-class families around, end quote. However, Sauter was notorious for speaking his mind to the point that he would burn some bridges. For example, he was adamantly against Italian dictator Benito Mussolini, which led to some strong arguments with other members throughout the Italian community. However, that didn't stop their good luck. The last of the Sauter children, Sylvia, was born in 1943, and their oldest son, Joe, joined the military to fight World War II. A year later, Mussolini died. 
In October 1943, after visiting the life insurance salesman, George caused a massive stir and was threatened. He was told that his house, quote, would go up in smoke and his children were going to be destroyed, end quote. The salesman said it was because of, quote, the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini, end quote. Now, I need to pause this for a second and explain something. While it might seem odd to some that Sauter was chastised for his oppression of Mussolini, understand that during that time, in all honesty, even today, Mussolini and Hitler's stance seemed reasonable to a lot of people. I'm not saying that I agree with either of them. Nazis and dictatorship are evil, simple as that. But you have to agree that there are groups of people that smile and befriend you, all while they keep hidden their beliefs in those types of evils. So, even though it sounds surprising that Sauter was reprimanded by his community, for hating Mussolini. Fitting in, whether you agree with it or not, is a common human characteristic. When you don't, people turn. There are also other times when Sauter was threatened about impending fires. Another visitor of the house took the occasion to go around in the back and warn George that their fuse boxes would, quote, cause a fire someday, end quote. George was puzzled by this observation since he just had the house rewired when the electric stove was installed and the local electric company had said it was safe. In the weeks before Christmas, his older sons also noticed a strange car parked along the main highway through town. The people in the car were watching the younger Sauter children as they returned from school. Not much was said about what happened to that car. Probably when the kids approached it, it drove away. The Sauters celebrated the holidays together on Christmas Eve, 1945. Marion, the oldest daughter, had been working at the dime store in downtown Fayetteville, and she surprised three of her younger sisters, Martha, 12, Jenny, 8, and Betty, 5, with the new toys that she had bought them there as gifts. We made everyone excited to the point that the younger kids were allowed to stay up past their bedtime. At 10 p.m., Jenny, the mom, told the kids that they could stay up a little later, as long as the two oldest boys, Maurice and Louis, remembered to do their chores. Their husband and their two oldest boys, John and George Jr., were already asleep. After reminding the children to do those chores, she took Sylvia, the youngest, upstairs with her and went to bed herself. The telephone rang at 12.30 a.m. Jenny woke up and went downstairs to answer it. It was a woman asking for a name that she was not familiar with. It sounded like the woman was at a party due to the sound of laughter and clicking of glasses in the background. She told the caller that they had reached a wrong number, later recalling the woman's weird laugh. She hung up and returned to bed. As she did, she noticed that the lights were still on and the curtains were not drawn two things the children normally did if they stayed up later than their parents. Marion had fallen asleep on the living room couch, so Jenny assumed that the other children, who had stayed up later, had gone up to the attic where they slept. She closed the curtains, turned off the lights, and returned to bed. 
At 1 a.m., Jenny was again awakened by the sound of an object hitting the house's roof with a loud bang, then a rolling noise. But like anyone waking up in the middle of the night, Jenny fell victim to sleep. After another half hour, she awoke again, smelling smoke. When she got up, she found that the room that George used for his office was on fire, around the telephone line and the fuse box. She woke him, and he, in turn, woke his other sons. Both parents and four of their children, Mary and Sylvia, John, and George Jr., escaped the house. They frantically yelled for the children upstairs to leave, but heard no response. Since the house was aflame, there was no way of them being courageous. Now, it is interesting to note that John Sauter, the son, said in his first police interview after the fire that he went up to the attic to alert his siblings, but later changed his story to say that, that he only called up there and did not actually see them. Efforts to find and rescue the children were complicated. The phone did not work, so Marion had to run to the neighbors to call the fire department. A driver on the nearby road had also seen the flames and called from a nearby tavern, but they were unsuccessful because they either could not reach the operator or because the phone turned out to be broken. The neighbor or the passing motorist was eventually successful in reaching the fire department from another phone in the center of town. Now, just take a moment to realize that those minutes that were needed were wasted on technicalities. While the phone situation was being solved, the family was proactive on saving the kid. However, they reached some walls. George, like any father, climbed the wall and broke open an attic window, ultimately cutting his arm in the process. The family aimed to bring the kids down by the ladder, but they couldn't find it. Also, the water barrel that could have been used to extinguish the flames was frozen solid. George then tried to pull both of his trucks he used in the business up to the house and use them to climb to the attic window, but neither of them would start despite having worked perfectly during the previous day. The six solders who had escaped had no choice but to watch the house burn down and collapse over the next 45 minutes. They assumed that the other children were dead. The fire department did not respond until later that morning. The chief, the only one there at the time, said that he couldn't drive a fire truck. This wasn't the only time when there were, let's say, confusing actions taken. In actuality, it was only just the beginning. The firefighters, one of whom was a brother of Jenny's, could do little but look through the ashes that were left in the solder's basement. However, by 10 a.m., the Sauters were told that the department had not found any bones. Nevertheless, the chief believed that the five children unaccounted for had died in the fire, suggesting that it had been hot enough to burn the bodies completely. The chief told George Sauter to leave the site undisturbed so that the state fire marshal's office could conduct a more thorough investigation. However, after four days, he and his wife could not bear the site anymore. So George bulldozed five feet of dirt over the site with the intention of converting it into a memorial garden for the lost children. While that might seem odd to some, grief tends to make us do stupid acts. It was believed that the fire was caused by faulty wiring. 
death certificates for the five children were issued December 30, 1945. The local newspaper contradicted itself, stating that all of the bodies had been found, but then stating in the same story that only one part of the body was recovered. George and Jenny Sauter were too grief-stricken to attend the funeral on January 2, 1946, but their surviving children did. Not long afterwards, the Sauters started to question what every official assessed. If there was an electrical problem, why did the family's Christmas lights remain on throughout the fire's early stages when the power should have gone out. They also found the ladder that had missing from the side of the house that night. It was at the bottom of an embankment, a good distance away. The telephone repairman told the Sodders that the house's phone line had not been burned through in the fire, as they initially thought, but cut by someone who had been willing to climb the 14-foot distance. A man who neighbors had seen stealing a block and tackle from the property around the time of the fire was identified and arrested. He admitted to the theft and claimed that he had been the one who cut the phone line, thinking it was the power line, but denied having anything to do with the fire. However, this identification went missing, and any explanation why he wanted to steal a block and tackle was never explained. Jenny Sauter said in 1968 that if he had cut the power line, she and her husband, along with their other four children, would have never made it out of the house alive. Jenny Sauter also had trouble accepting Fire Chief Morris's belief that any trace of the children's bodies would be burned completely in the fire. Many items were still found, as well as traces of the tin roof. She even burned small piles of animal bones, to see if they would be completely consumed. None ever were. The fact is that human remains need to be burned at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit or 1,090 degrees Celsius for two hours to be completely consumed. Far longer and hotter than the house fire could have been. The truck's failure to start was also suspect. George Sauter believed that it had been tampered with, perhaps by the same man who stole the block and tackle and cut the phone line. However, one of his sons-in-law told the Charleston Gazette and Mail in 2013 that he believes that Sauter and his sons could have flooded the engines accidentally. For those that don't know what flooded the engines means... Don't worry, <laughs> I didn't know either. I actually had to do that age-old response to any issue and ask my dad. Basically, there are a couple of ways to flood an engine, but one that I thought was most notable was that you could flood an engine by turning it on too much when it's too cold. Remember, this was Christmas time in West Virginia. Some accounts have suggested that the wrong number phone call to the solder house could have been suspect as well. However, investigators later located the woman who made the call. She confirmed it was the wrong number. When spring came, the Sodders planted flowers in the soil bulldozed over house. Jenny Sodder tended it carefully for the rest of her life. Despite having so much solace and completion in their grief, 
it didn't stop the Sauter family in searching for their answers. There was evidence that supported their belief that the fire was set deliberately. The driver of the bus that passed through Fayetteville late Christmas Eve said that he had seen some people throwing, quote, balls of fire at the house. A few months later, when the snow had melted, Sylvia found a small, hard, dark green rubber ball-like object. George Sauter said it looked like a pineapple bomb hand grenade. The family later claimed that, contrary to the fire marshal's conclusion, the fire had started on the roof, but there was no way to prove it. Other witnesses claimed to have seen the children after the fire. One woman, who had been watching the fire from the road, said she had seen some of them peering out of a passing car while the house was aflame. Another woman said that she had served them breakfast the next morning and noted the presence of a car with Florida license plates at the rest stop's parking lot. The Sodders hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley to look into the case. He learned that the insurance salesman who had threatened them with a fire a year prior was on the coroner's jury that had ruled the fire an accident. He also learned of rumors around Fayetteville that Morris actually had found a heart at the fire wreck, which he later packed into a metal box and secretly buried it. Morris had apparently confessed this to a local minister who confirmed it to George Sauter. Even though it was terrible news, Sauter and Tinsley went to Morris and confronted him. He agreed to show the two where he had buried it, and they dug it up. They took what they found inside the box to a local funeral director, who, after examining it, told him that it was fresh beef liver and that it had never been exposed to fire. If you're punching your wall in anger, I apologize and I completely understand. It was discovered that Morris had admitted that the liver was indeed not from the fire. He had supposedly placed it there in the hope that the Sodders would find it, not verify it, and would be satisfied that the missing children had died in the fire. Tragically, George Sauter would see his children everywhere. After seeing a girl in a magazine picture, he drove all the way to the girls' school in New York where he demanded to see her and talk to her. His demands were denied. He also tried to get the FBI involved in what he believed was a kidnapping. Director J. Edgar Hoover personally responded to his letter saying, quote, Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and it does not come with the investigative jurisdiction of that bureau. End quote. He also mentioned that if the police and or fire department requested his service, he would happily assist. However, the police and the fire department never did. In August 1949, George was able to persuade Oscar Hunter, a pathologist, to supervise a new search through the dirt at the house site. After a very thorough search, artifacts including a dictionary that had belonged to the children and some coins were found. Also, several small bone fragments were unearthed, determined to have been human vertebrae. As you can tell where we are at this story, this isn't over. The vertebrae were sent to Marshall T. Newman, a specialist at the Smithsonian. They were confirmed to be of lumbar vertebrae, all from the same person, but, quote, since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been around 16 or 17 years. 
the top limit of age should be around 22, since the centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still infused, end quote. So, this wasn't any of the solder children, since the oldest, Maurice, would have been 14 at the time. Also, Newman added that the bones showed no sign of exposure to flame. He agreed that it was very strange that those bones were the only ones that were found, since a wood fire of such short duration should have been left with full skeletons of all the children behind. Tinsley confirmed that the bone fragments had come from a cemetery in nearby Mount Hope, but could not explain why they had been taken from there or how they came to be at the friar's site. The bones have since been lost. Eventually, the legislation and its findings attracted national attention, and the West Virginia legislator held two hearings on the case in 1950. Afterwards, however, the governor and the state police superintendent told the Sodders that the case was hopeless. The FBI decided it had the jurisdiction as a possible interstate kidnapping, but dropped the case after two years. Despite the end of official efforts to resolve the case, the Sodders were still resilient. They had flyers printed up with the pictures of the children, offering a 5,000 reward soon doubled for any information. In 1952, they put up a billboard at the side of the house with the same offering. Their efforts soon brought another reported sighting of the children after the fire. Ida Crutchfield, a woman who ran the Charleston Hotel, claimed that she had seen the children approximately a week afterwards. She said she did not remember the exact date, but the children had come in around midnight with two men and two women all of whom appeared to her to be, quote, of Italian extraction, end quote. When she attempted to speak with the children, quote, one of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me, end quote. They left the hotel early the next morning. There were always many leads that kept giving the Sodders hope. A woman in St. Louis claimed Martha was being held in a convent. A bar patron in Texas claimed to have overheard two people making incriminating statements about a fire that happened on Christmas Eve in West Virginia some years before. None of these tips went anywhere, but it didn't mean that George gave up. When George later heard that a relative of Jenny's in Florida had children that looked similar to his, the relative had to prove the children were his own before George was satisfied. In 1967, Sutter went to the Houston area to investigate another tip. A woman there had written to the family saying that Louis Sutter had revealed his true identity to her one night after having too much to drink. She believed that he and Maurice were both living in Texas somewhere, but Sutter and his son-in-law, Grover Paxton, were unable to speak with her. Police there were able to help them find two men that she had indicated, but they denied being the missing sons. Paxson said years later that he had doubts about that denial. When I had first heard about this story, I summed it up to a family grieving so hard that they were in denial. I thought that until I heard about the letter. One day, Jenny found in the mail a letter addressed to her, postmarked in Central City, Kentucky, with no return address. Inside was a picture of a young man around 30 with features strongly resembling Lewis's, who would have been around 30 if he had survived. 
there was a note on the back. It said, Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie. I-L-I-L boys, A90132 or 35. They hired another private investigator to go to Central City and look for Lewis, but he disappeared. The picture, nonetheless, gave them hope. They added it to the billboard. George Sauter admitted to the Charleston Gazette Mail that, quote, we only want to know. If they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them, end quote. George died in 1969. Jenny and her surviving children, except John, who never talked about the night of the fire, except to say that the family should accept it and get on with their lives, continued to seek answers to their questions. After George's death, Jenny stayed in the family home, putting up fencing around it and adding additional rooms. For the rest of her life, she wore black in mourning and tended to the garden at the side of the former house. After her death in 1989, the family finally took down the weathered, worn billboard down. The surviving Sauter children, joined by their own children, continued to publicize the case and investigate leads. They have theorized that the Sicilian Mafia was trying to extort money from George Sauter and someone who knew about the arson may have taken the children. If the children had survived all those years, they were aware that their parents and siblings have survived too. The family believes that they have avoided contact to keep the family safe. As of 2015, Sylvia Sauter Paxton, the youngest of the family, is the only one still alive of the surviving children. She states, quote, I experienced their grief for a long time. Stacey Horn, who did a segment on the case for National Public Radio around the 60th anniversary in 2005, believes that the children's death in the fire is the most plausible solution. However, she states, there is enough genuine weirdness about this whole thing that if someday it is learned that the children did not die in the fire, I wouldn't be shocked. There's this phenomenon called the Mandela Effect, where groups of people remember one thing and are shocked to find out it's another, where their understanding of how things work are ripped out from under their feet. I generally believe in the Mandela Effect. For example, in my eyes, it has been and will always be the Berenstein Bears and not the Berenstain Bears. But that's not the point. The point that I'm trying to make is that To be told one thing without strong backing tends to mentally destroy someone. It frustrates us beyond belief. To do that through grief, man, that's unbearable. The Sauter situation is not only tragic, but also suspicious. It is not only mind-numbingly devastating, but also frustrating. The Sauter situation not only brings up questions about what really happened, but also makes us question about why no definitive answer has lasted so long. All I'm trying to say is, hold your loved ones close tonight. Let them know you love them. You might never get a chance to do it again. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know by leaving a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you haven't already yet, subscribe to us on your podcast device. We take time to work on these episodes, and a small gesture like that really makes our day. 
If you would like to chat with us, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and at our email at tales of the number two cities podcast at gmail.com. And also, most importantly, thank you so much for listening.